the great reformer Martin Luther championed a theological dichotomy known as the theology of the cross as opposed to the theology of glory. This dichotomy is two rims on either side of a great canyon, two perspectives on reality, two frameworks by which we understand the work of God. Luther argued from passages such as 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 13, that we can consider God and understand Him in one of two ways. According to Luther, a theology of glory understands God in human terms. In other words, God is and does pretty much as we expect Him to be and do in our human wisdom. The clearest example we have of a theology of glory in the Bible is the people of Jerusalem when Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city in the days leading up to his passion. The words and actions of the people revealed that they expected Jesus to come as a conquering king, not as a sacrificial lamb. This is the common human perception. When we think of someone who fits the category of the chosen one, who has come to bring victory to his people, we think of a victorious champion on a white horse, rending the skies in his fury and laying waste to his enemies. This is what the Jewish people expected because they misunderstood God. They assumed that his Messiah would come in victory and triumph and wipe out his geopolitical enemies. But the theology of the cross teaches us the exact opposite. The theology of the cross understands Christ as he truly was in his first coming. Not a conquering king, but a sacrificial lamb. Christ's great power was not displayed in laying waste to his enemies, but in laying down his life, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. These two categories, the theology of glory and the theology of the cross, are helpful as we seek to understand Paul's perception of his own ministry in contrast to the conceit of the Corinthian church in our text this morning where Paul ironically and sarcastically derides the Corinthian church for denying the word of the cross and denying its power and embracing the very folly that the gospel so clearly opposes and upends. With that in mind, take your copy of God's word and turn it to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you may find one underneath the seat in front of you, and if you do not own a Bible that you can read and understand in your own language, consider that Bible our gift to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 13. The Word of God says this. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have ruled without us. And how I wish that you had ruled indeed so that we also might rule along with you. For, I think, that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, 
and to angels and to men. We are fools for the sake of Christ, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are glorious, but we are without honor. To this present hour we hunger and thirst and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to plead. We have become as the scum of the world, the grime of all things, even until now. So reads the word of the one true and living God. Father, give us eyes to see, hearts to receive your word now. Help us view ourselves the way Paul viewed himself. Grant to us now the life that comes only from your word. In the name of Christ, our true and living word, we pray. Amen. In verses 8 through 10, Paul contrasts the self-designated strength of the Corinthians with the spectacle of the apostles. And so we see this dichotomy, strength versus spectacle. Paul describes this self-designated strength with six key terms found in verse 8 and in verse 10. What does he say? Term number one, you've already been filled. You have already become rich. You have already ruled without us down going to verse 10. You are prudent, you are strong, you are glorious. Six abundantly positive terms that the Corinthian church used to describe themselves. Now, understand here, when Paul is talking to the Corinthians in these verses, he is employing what some commentators have called a heavy helping of sanctified snark. Paul is messing with the Corinthians a little bit. He's poking fun at them. He's being a little sarcastic with them. We might say that he is indulging them in their foolishness and speaking to them on their own terms, however stupid those terms might be. We can rightly say that Paul is doing what Solomon once advised, answering a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. The Corinthians have an elevated view of themselves, so elevated, in fact, that they seem to understand themselves and describe themselves in what theologians call fulfilled eschatological terms. In other words, the Corinthians believe that they have ushered in the second coming of Christ and brought about the final and eternal state of Sabbath blessing and rest, and they have done so without the help or even the presence of Paul and the rest of the apostles. A bold claim on the part of the Corinthians. They wanted eschatological blessings without eschatological faithfulness. They wanted the fruit of the consummation without the root of the consummation. They perceived themselves as 
filled and satisfied without ever having hungered and thirsted for righteousness. They were Laodiceans, neither hot nor cold, claiming wealth and riches while being ignorant of the fact that they were wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. The Corinthians wanted to go straight to being highly exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father without having first been humbled as a servant to the point of death. The Corinthians wanted the glory at the end without the suffering that is required to get there. They believed in a theology of glory, not a theology of the cross. It's trendy in some corners of Christianity today to believe in this theology of glory that plagued the Corinthians. These movements say something like this, Christians are destined for greatness, destined to rule, destined for great wealth and a lavish life here on earth. Many American Christians have fallen prey to the Corinthian mistake of believing that the blessings of the resurrection will be ours before the resurrection comes, that we can pull the new Jerusalem down from heaven before God is ready to send it to us. Now, make no mistake, God can and does bless his people in this life with real material blessings. It does happen. But the Corinthians believed that this was the rule. Paul believes that this is the exception. The reality of the Christian life this side of heaven is a reality of spectacle, not strength. It is a reality of the cross, not glory. Paul confirms this in verse 9 by describing his own life as an apostle. Verse 9 says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. The life of an apostle is a last place appearance according to Paul. The NIV translates it this way, the apostles appear at the end of the procession. This is where the slaves and the criminals and the losers go. Paul sarcastically applauds the Corinthians for being in first place. You are already filled. You've already become rich. You have ruled. You're in first place, Corinthians. Great job. But the apostles are in last place. Losers. The world perceived Paul in its human wisdom as a loser. He's not rich. He's not strong. He's a raggedy fool with no great eloquence, no great physiological stature, being dragged along publicly like a criminal, a convict, a man to whom all earthly comforts were denied. And Paul had experienced this in real life multiple times. He was on the run from Jewish and Roman authorities, and sometimes he got caught. Sometimes he went to prison. He knew what it was like as well as anyone to be dragged along at the end of the procession as a public spectacle for no other reason than to be humiliated. He applies that imagery to his entire life here. His whole ministry ideologically is a public spectacle to the world. It's a slapstick comedy show where the world and its human wisdom laughs at Paul in his pain. That's literally what the word translated here, spectacle, means in the Greek. That Greek word there, theatron, theater. It's a stage for a comedy show. 
It's not displaying Paul as the hero, but as a laughable simpleton. We laugh at him the way we laugh at the three stooges because they're stupid and they hit each other over the head with boards and fall on their faces. Paul, to the world, was a stooge. So much so that the world and angels and men gaze upon him as they would a show on a stage in shock and horror and eventually in amusement. The wisdom of God is perceived as foolishness to a world whose philosophy calls for strength, honor, and eloquence, not humility and simplicity. Paul is a weak, shameful fool, according to human philosophy. The Corinthians, on the other hand, perceived themselves as strong and honorable sages. Let's pause here and build a bridge. How do we want to be perceived as a church today? Are we a Pauline church following the example of the apostles? Or are we a Corinthian church? The problem for the Corinthians is that they examined and evaluated their life and ministry according to the standards set by the pagan world around them. Right here. This mistake, measuring yourself by a pagan worldly standard, is where churches fail and fall today, right here, right now. What does the world say? They say that Taylor Swift is successful because she can fill stadiums with adoring fans on her world tour. Is that what we want as a church and as Christians? Do we want to fill stadiums like Taylor Swift can or like the Dallas Cowboys can or any other entertainer? There are pastors and churches out there who will tell you, yes, that is absolutely the goal. Fill stadiums with people. But Paul tells us here, that's the wrong standard. The world says that Stephen King and Walter Isaacson and Bill O'Reilly are successful because they can crank out bestseller after bestseller on the New York Times bestseller list. Do we want our name on that list? There are well-known and prominent Christian pastors who have sacrificed their integrity to get their name on the New York Times bestseller list. Paul says here, it's the wrong standard. The world says that Mr. Beast and Zach King and Dwayne Johnson are successful because they have hundreds of millions of TikTok followers. Do we want to be social media influencers as Christians? There are pastors and churches and Christians the world over who work tirelessly to build their social media following, but Paul tells us that's the wrong standard. This is the theology of glory in the 21st century. So what does a theology of the cross look like in the 21st century? 
Well, we can start here. Get rid of the stadiums. Get rid of the publishing deals. Get rid of the social media. Get real. Get humble with people you know, face to face, eye to eye. Be willing to be last in line. Be willing to be made fun of. Be willing to be a fool for the sake of Christ. We've got to stop as Christians and as a church in America worrying about what the world thinks about us. We know for a fact that they're going to hate us. So why would we try to earn their love? We've got to stop measuring ourselves by worldly standards of success. It's not about filling stadiums. It's not about getting on bestseller lists. It's not about amassing followers. It's about this was I faithful. Did I follow my good shepherd even when no one was watching and no one cared? Did I serve my king when times are good? Did I serve him even more faithfully when times were bad? Success for Paul and for us must not be measured by seats or sales or likes or clicks, but by the depth and breadth of our love for God, our church, and our community. And if you measure success that way, the world will call you a fool. They'll deride you. They'll tell you you're stupid. They'll tell you to hire a search engine optimization manager and a director of marketing for your church. They'll tell you to write your sermons down in a Word document and send them to a publisher. They'll tell you you need to pull out the phone and film your sermons so that you can snip them up and put them on TikTok and Instagram and YouTube. And Paul says, forget about all of that. Paul doesn't even have a category for that. For Paul, success is faithfulness, period. You'll be called a fool, you'll be derided, and according to Paul, that's okay. It's fine. It's worth it to suffer all things so that we might gain Christ. Paul now turns a corner in verse 11 with a more detailed description of the spectacle he first mentioned in verse 9. In these three verses, Paul rattles off a series of descriptive words that explain his experience as an apostle, the things he endured for the sake of Christ. Hunger, thirst, poor clothes, rough treatment, homelessness, hard manual labor, persecution, and slander. Eight things. This is the apostolic spectacle, the comedy show. The world laughed at. Paul sums all of this up, these eight things, with a simple one-two punch in verse 13. We have become as the scum of the world, the grime of all things. In case you were Wondering, that word translated scum in your English translation only had two uses in the ancient world. One was for the slime that you would find on the bottom of the hull of a wooden ship after it had been at sea for months. The other thing that this word describes was for the stuff that the slaves would shovel out of the ancient Roman sewer systems. Let your imagination run with that. Paul was a shameful spectacle. 
in these eight ways. Paul was not filled with the best wine and food. He was not eating at the best restaurants. He was not shopping at Whole Foods. Lukewarm water, stale bread crusts, that was the way for Paul. Likewise, Paul was not clothed in the latest in high Roman fashion. Chances are, Paul probably looked more like the homeless guy sitting on the curb in downtown L.A. than he would look even like any of us in the room right now. Paul was roughly treated. We know from elsewhere in the New Testament that Paul was repeatedly beaten, stoned, thrown in prison, attacked, beat up, and generally mistreated. Acts, Acts <clears throat> excuse me, 14 tells us that he was stoned and dragged out of the city. Acts 16, that he was inflicted with many wounds. And Acts 23, that he was struck on the mouth publicly for accidentally speaking ill of the high priest. Paul was homeless. By the time Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, Paul had no permanent base of operations. This was the case throughout his ministry in the book of Acts. He was constantly traveling and sailing and walking and caravanning to his next destination. In fact, we could rightly say that the closest thing Paul had to a home was his prison cell. That is at the height of homelessness. I don't know what is. Paul labored working with his own hands. Paul was bivocational for almost his entire ministry. We know from the book of Acts that he spent a lot of time as a tent maker. It's the equivalent of a modern-day construction worker. He was just a trades guy. He knew what it was like to work his fingers down to the bone just to ensure that he had enough money to buy food tomorrow. Paul was reviled. He wasn't a popular guy. He consistently was under hardship simply for being who he was and pursuing the mission that God gave him. Likewise, he was persecuted, thrown in prison, beaten, battered for his faith. He was also slandered, dealing with people constantly who hated him enough to lie about him publicly and tell others false things about him and his ministry. It's easy to understand at this point why Paul would refer to himself as the scum of the earth and as the grime of all things. Paul had a hard life, an exceedingly hard life. And his life served as an indictment against the fat, rich, beautiful, well-dressed, cushy, soft-handed Corinthians. His entire life demonstrated that the way of Christ in this world is not the way of the rich and powerful, but the way of the meek and lowly. Just as Paul's life indicted the Corinthians in his day, perhaps it also indicts many Americans in our day. I think many Christians in our nation Perhaps even some pastors have no concept, for example, of hunger and thirst. In fact, rather clearly, they eat and drink whatever they want, whenever they want. 
They are outfitted in the latest Armani suits, driving the newest Mercedes and BMWs, living in what only could be described as mansions. I think Paul would be astounded at this, and perhaps he would even take a sarcastic swipe at some folks in the American church today, the same way that he took a sarcastic swipe at the Corinthians. I think it would be wise for us this morning to take a step back and evaluate carefully our own lives. Are we willing to endure what Paul endured for the sake of Christ and the gospel? I think that such a future may come to our own lives sooner than we may think. Are we prepared for hunger and thirst for the sake of Christ? Are we prepared for homelessness for the sake of Christ? Are we prepared to be a spectacle of scum for the sake of the gospel? Paul's heart for the Corinthians, as we will see next week, is that they would imitate Paul in this way. Just go right down a couple verses. Verse 16, therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. Will we likewise imitate Paul in this way? As we wrap up today, I want to point out that Paul does not write what he writes here simply as a recounting of his own experience. Though that certainly is what it is, right? Paul is writing autobiographically. He's telling us about his life. But I believe Paul describes these particular circumstances of his ministry, these particular afflictions, because they mirror and escalate the circumstances of the ministry of Christ. Paul describes the way of the apostles this way, because this is the way of Christ. This is the theology of the cross. Let me show you. Now, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was being led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had finished, he was hungry. Jesus' ministry was marked by hunger. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been finished, in order to finish the Scripture, He said, I am thirsty. Jesus thirsted. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took His garments and divided them amongst themselves. Jesus was poorly clothed. Pilate then took Jesus and flogged him, and when the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a purple robe on him, and they were coming to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and were slapping him in his face. Jesus was roughly treated. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was homeless. 
And Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many teachers and many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to this man and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Isn't this man the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were taking offense at him. Whether as a worker of miracles or as a worker of wood, Jesus labored with his own hands. And those passing by were blaspheming him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. Can he not save himself? If he is the king of Israel, let him go ahead and come on down from the cross. And then we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who had been crucified there with him were also insulting him with the same words. Jesus was reviled, persecuted, slandered. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In the midst of the reviling and the persecution and the slander, Jesus blessed, endured, and forgave. Jesus himself was the original spectacle of scum. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. This was Jesus' lot, and likewise it was Paul's lot. This is the theology of the cross, a theology that understands that the moment in which we find our greatest triumph is precisely the moment of greatest humiliation and horror. For at the cross, as God, very God, light of light eternal, hung humiliated on a cross of wood that he created and held together by the word of his power, at that cross, sin and death and evil were defeated. Defeated not by a king on a white horse with a sword girded at his side leading legions into the fray. That was not the one who conquered evil. No. 
the head of the serpent was crushed and sin and death defeated by a carpenter. Abandoned by all his friends. Left alone. Beaten to a bloody pulp. Being publicly executed in the most humiliating fashion known in human history. With every mocking word and every wad of spit that landed upon his naked, bloody body, he was driven farther and farther down into the very valley of the shadow of death, the most humiliating place that he could find himself. And there, at the very lowest point, when the shame and the humiliation could not have been greater, and he could not have been further from glory, as Christ is made a spectacle of scum hung on a hill next to a roadside for the entire world to see his shame. There, there is where God says to him, I am at your right hand. You have crushed the head that is over the wide earth. Now, rest. Drink from the brook of life by the wayside. And in three days, my son, you will lift up your head. And for that reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That, friends, is the theology of the cross. That is the theology that guided Christ, that guided Paul in the theology that indeed must guide us. Only by humility, through suffering, will we gain glory. Corinthians needed to learn this lesson, and I pray that we learn it along with them. So let me close now with a quote from that great Puritan, John Flavel. Listen to these words. What an overflowing fullness of grace was there in Christ, and yet to what a low ebb did his outward comforts sometimes fall. And as it fared with him, so it fares with us and with many others now in glory with him, whilst they were on the way to glory. Their souls were richly clothed in robes of righteousness, their bodies naked and meanly clad. Their souls fed high, even on the hidden manna, their bodies hungry. Let us be content with our hard fare, for do we not feast with angels upon the bread of life? 
remember when once squeezed hard that these fix no marks of God's hatred upon you. For he has dealt no worse with you than he dealt with his own dear son. Nay, which of you is not even better accommodated than Christ was? If you be hungry or thirsty, you have some refreshments. You have beds to lie on. The Son of Man had not where to lay his head. The heir of all things had sometimes nothing to eat. And remember, you are going to a plentiful country where all your wants will be supplied, poor in the world but rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which God hath promised. The meanness and lowly estate of your present will add to the luster and glory of your future condition. Let me say that again. The meanness and lowliness of your present state will add to the luster and glory of your future condition. Father, give us strength and patience as we tread the path from suffering to glory. May Christ be our example and may the Spirit be our guide. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for joining us for worship this morning. If you have any spiritual need, there are leaders scattered around the auditorium who would love to speak with you and pray with you. And now if you would please stand for a benediction from God's word. By faith, Abraham when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for a better country, a heavenly one, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. May we likewise look now for that better and heavenly country. You are dismissed.